What's up, everybody? This is Cortland from IndieHackers.com, and you're listening to the Indie Hackers podcast. More people than ever are building cool stuff online and making a lot of money in the process. And on this show, I sit down with these indie hackers to discuss the ideas, the opportunities, and the strategies they're taking advantage of so the rest of us can do the same. I'm here with Nia Dragova, uh, the founder of Candor. Nia, how's it going? Hey, it's going well. Very nice to be here. Thank you so much for inviting me. Uh, yeah. And longtime fan. Yeah, uh, and vice versa. I think my buddy Julian introduced us maybe like 10 or 11 months ago, earlier this year. Yeah. And we were talking about your company and building community. Uh, I don't know how helpful I was during that call. I probably had no Very. actual good tips. <laughs> Very. But uh, <laughs> it's cool to actually have you on the podcast. Why don't we tell listeners like what Candor is? Because it's kind of changed since I talked to you almost a year ago. So at Candor, we help tech employees at public companies manage their equity. And what we do is uh, essentially give you information, advice, and resources to really understand what all of your options are. Uh, very few people realize that how we treat equity hasn't really changed much since the 80s and the 70s. But how many people we pay in equity, well, that's really changed. Almost everybody gets it now. So we're here to sort of close the gap and make those tools available to everyone and not just to kind of the select few. Uh, historically, that's been executives, but hopefully in the future, yeah. it'll be everyone. Yeah. Yeah, it's super cool because you guys do a lot of stuff. I mean, like their main thing is basically my favorite business, help people make more money, <laughs> help <Yeah>. employees make <laughs> more from their equity. Like who doesn't want to make more money? Yeah. But then if you go to your website, so it's candor.co, C-A-N-D-O-R.co, and you go into resources, you have all these other things. So we are just talking about your newsletter, which we'll get into. I love your newsletter. I think it's my favorite newsletter in tech. Then you've got like a salary negotiation guide. You have offer reviews. You have all sorts of different things. Like you can go there and like literally say like, oh, you know, I applied for a job at Facebook. Like, is this a competitive offer that they gave me? What kind of other offers are people giving me, et cetera? So I've used this. Others have used it. It's super useful. But your main thing is helping employees make more money from their RSUs. Yeah. I think there, there's such a big juxtaposition between people who traditionally have been part of tech and people who just now are getting the door open to be part of tech. And Candor really exists to democratize information to everyone. If you don't know how much your equity is worth or how to negotiate it or what to even do with it, because you might be the first person in your whole family to ever work in tech or to ever have a college degree or to ever be part of this community. So if you don't have this information, you're just, you know, 20 steps behind. And totally. we just want to make sure everyone's on equal ground. Yeah, I think it's a very noble cause. And it's, it's good to educate people so they can advocate for themselves. I think there's a lot that's been said, especially in the last five five, six years, just about like salary negotiation and mm -hmm. how people from, in particular, like underprivileged backgrounds or people who don't have, you know, like sort of the connections of their family to teach them this kind of stuff. In many cases, like women are just like a little bit less aggressive when it comes to negotiating and uh, yeah. often just don't get paid as much as their peers, even though they're doing just as good of work because they come into these negotiations just with less information. And so I like the idea of like teaching people and giving people the tools and sort of like, like you said, democratizing this information about how to save money on taxes or how to negotiate well or what like a typical offer looks like so that the average person can be as good as like, you know, a higher exec and making sure they get paid what they deserve. A lot of people also don't realize that this needs to happen super early in your career, right? So like we all agree at some point you should be negotiating, right? But not a lot of people think about how early that should happen. I was going to quote a study. I just sent this for an article I'm writing. So Harvard did a study that's super interesting. And it basically trails the careers of women 
from the time that they graduate all the way to the time that they retire. And it looks whether they negotiated or not and what their outcome was. And essentially, if a woman doesn't negotiate at the time that she graduates, so her very, very first job, on average, she'll like lose 7000 in the first year and between 650000 and a million over the course of her career. Because when you compound that, it actually adds up to a ton. So when you think about like all the times you didn't negotiate for yourself, even if you felt like the offer was fair, there's going to be a ton you're missing out of. And for me, that's really personal because I was one of those people growing up who had like basically zero resources. And I came from, you know, a very, very, very poor background. Um, and so I always experienced myself as an outsider to a lot of these communities. And I relied on other people's like kindness and, and grace to teach me and to mentor me. And I was lucky that I got that. But there's so many people who are not lucky and we should not rely on luck to make equitable choices, right? So yeah. I really care about this on a personal level. So let's talk about your background a little bit. You grew sure. up in Bulgaria? I grew up and I was raised in Bulgaria, which is like a post stamp of a country. If you were talking about size, it has the population of the whole country is like 7 million and declining very fast. It's one of the fastest declining countries in the world. And so if you think about like, I think San Francisco has 10 million people living here. It's less than the population of the city. I grew up at a time of like intense turmoil. Uh, we were a communist country that was turning to democracy. And uh, I was growing up during that transition. So my family experienced a lot of uh, scarcity and food insecurity and just a lot of uncertainty about the future. When you were a child, was it like obvious to you that like this was a unique period to be growing up in in Bulgaria? Like there was like a lot of unrest mm -hmm. or was it? Because I imagine when you grow up somewhere, it's like, well, you're a kid. You don't really know any better. That might just be like, yeah, this is just how life is. The answer is no. I think we were very closed off because of communism. So there was no like news coming in from outside of the country. You can only get the like national news, national newspapers. And I grew up in a lot of fear. I was taught from a young age, like don't ask uh, anything about how the regime is doing or don't talk too much about it because people could disappear if you make a joke or if you say something wrong. And so I think I didn't know it was not normal. I certainly knew some of the things my family was doing were not normal. My family did not, uh, you know, kind of half of my family is very communist and the other half is not at all. And so I grew up with the half that's not at all. And so because they were not supportive of the regime, we got basically right. no food. And we had to make our own food. So we made our own soap, we made our own cheese, we made our own yogurt, wow. and we like owned nothing. Uh, so my grandpa had like saved money and literally had like a, a cow in the forest. And I'm not even like remotely joking. Like we would walk like five, six cow. miles in the morning. Yeah, hidden cow. Then it was two cows. There was two cows and a pig. Then we had chicken. But they were in a forest on like land we didn't own because we were not allowed as non-supporters of the party to own land. Uh, and we would go like before dawn and like after sunset so people wouldn't see because they could report us and, you know, we literally could be detained. And we would milk cows and make products out of it. And many of the other people in our neighborhood who had babies but didn't mm -hmm. have any milk, uh, we would give that to them to make sure that their kids survived. So it was, it was a tough, a very tough growing up. But it taught me one thing, and that was that money was very important. Like I had a concept of money at a very, very young age. And knowing that inequity when it comes to money was what was causing this. And that I had that concept at a very young age. So in a way, like my whole life, I've been wanting to work on what I'm working now. The consequences of my childhood essentially are from, you know, enormous inequity. And I don't want that to ever exist in the world. Right. I was reading a study, I don't know when, maybe a couple months ago, about just like entrepreneurship and like childhood poverty, childhood adversity. 
And there's a lot of evidence to suggest that like people who go through additional hardships as children are more likely to become entrepreneurs when they're older for a variety of reasons. And so I think in this particular study, they were they were studying like the great Chinese famine of like 1960 or whatever. And a lot of the kids who came out of that famine became basically migrant entrepreneurs. They grew up, they moved to a different place and they started businesses. And maybe, you know, as you're suggesting, like the reason for that is because when things are so hard, you do become acutely aware of like very adult concepts like money and survival and kind of how entrepreneurship and how basically acquiring and trading resources works. You know, when I was a kid, I was not thinking about, okay, the babies in my town need milk. Where is our cow? How am I going to provide this to them? You know, I didn't have to think about any of that stuff because my childhood was pretty cushy. But with you, I mean, you're a very formidable entrepreneur now and you're literally a migrant entrepreneur. You now live in the United States. I'm talking to you. You're in your San Francisco apartment with your San Francisco background doing it big. For me, like my concept of doing it big is also just like really different. Like I feel very fortunate to, you know, have so much support from the community uh, and to have so many people in tech, like really band behind candor. But my idea of doing it big has always been like super simple. You know, my grandparents are like 92 and 94. So my idea of doing it big is like giving them a good life. And knowing that like I'm able to do that and I'm able to sort of kind of close that circle they've been a part of for many generations now just feels really good like it feels really meaningful a lot of times these these are invisible situations right people in the U.S. have very similar childhoods to what I did in Eastern Europe we just don't talk about it and we don't see it and so there's a lot of work we have to do that's invisible to most people to to get this to not be a thing and I think it's, it's a cautionary tale to grow up that way. I don't know if it makes you a better or a worse entrepreneur. I think it definitely just makes you aware of your humanity and of your fragility as a human. And it gives you appreciation of, of very basic things that, you know, they're not connected to money, like things like love and integrity and honesty that you can't buy, but you realize when you get money that those were the things that mattered all along anyway. How did you get here? How did you get out of Bulgaria? On a plane. <laughs> <laughs> On a plane. Uh, I got here very young. So I knew very, very early on, you know, I had a very tumultuous youth. And I, I basically kind of raised myself is probably the, the best way to put it. So I uh, graduated high school when I was 13 years old. And I thought that graduating high school meant I could get hired and I could go get a job. And uh, not many people in finance want to hire a 13 year old. So that yeah. was like a first harsh reality for me. And then I got lucky that I got to come to the U.S. I came here when I was like 15 and a half. I had a little bit of support from people that I knew here already, but basically that amounted to 500 bucks. So I lived in this kind of communal house of other people that are Bulgarian for the first year. It's kind of like a landing pad for immigrants. Like if you don't speak the language really well or you have no credit or you have no phone, everybody kind of hooks you up. But it comes with a ton of strength. You have to do those favors back. So I right. lived that way for a year and then kind of found my footing and started working as I, as I would call it indoors. Cause the first jobs you get as an immigrant, like they're not fun. You're working for retail or you're loading a truck somewhere, you're doing catering. And I lived through that. And my big triumph was like getting an indoor job, which was like so important step. to me at the time, you know, like I just don't want to be outdoors. Like they just put me in front of yeah. my computer and then it was, it was all fine from there. But getting to that point was like really a struggle. I had a construction job. Uh, really? For a summer when I was 18. It was horrible. I like I almost died every day. I was stepping on nails. I was walking into rooms full of like just like bright yellow dust that I'm like, I probably shouldn't be inhaling this, but I don't have a mask and everyone else is walking in here. So let's oh do it. God. We're building a hotel. And 
I could not wait to get out of that job. And I also appreciated working indoors with AC, sitting in a cushy chair so much more after that job. But I also have like kind of acclimated. Like now like I don't appreciate the difference as much anymore because like that was like 15, 16 years ago. And so I wonder like with you, you know, like you had this upbringing that was really tough, but now you're like in Silicon Valley. Like the people that you meet at coffee shops, the people that you talk to in podcast episodes have also like are living like this very cushy, comfortable life. Sure. How do you not have, I guess, how do you protect your values from changing? You know, like how do you protect your ambition? Like you mentioned that you really want to like, you know, take care of your grandparents, et cetera. But sure. like once you get to Silicon Valley, it's so easy to be like, that's not enough. You know, I need to build the biggest unicorn ever and I won't be happy unless I do that. Well, I definitely like I, I wake up and go to bed with that drive. Right. So building something like that is important to me. Like I have a, a clock and a timetable when I want to take my company public. I have a calendar and every day is like an X closer to that goal. So I like I know when that's going to happen. It's not even a question. It's just more so like will I meet my own timetable or not? So you've got both. You've got the big Silicon Valley ambitions and the I'm happy if I take care of my grandparents. I think they feed each other for me. Like they're not they're not juxtaposed. Like they're very, very together. So my grandparents, uh, to give you an idea, uh, I help take care of them and they are in the very last stages of life right now. They're both in hospice. They know who I am on a very good day. So most of the time they don't know who I am. When you see someone go for that transition in life, it gives you such a crazy realization of like who do I want to be and how do I want to feel like when I'm 94 and for me the really big alignment I felt is that I felt that I wanted to be the person that built this company really big and for me those two things feed each other because I believe my company exists to do good in the world I believe that people see that and that's why we have like this enormous support and I believe that I'll leave things better than how I found them and for me, it's important to fight for that because then it means that being big and getting scale is not a it's not a financial goal for me. It's a goal of reaching more people and having more impact What a cause that I feel like is important and something I would feel proud of, you know, when I'm 94. Um, and so the thing I struggle with the most in Silicon Valley is burnout. And I'm like 100 percent not like the most balanced person. And that's something I struggle with quite a bit in yeah. my lifestyle. Yeah. That's pretty common and yeah. I think there's very little balance. <laughs> there's a <laughs> lot of go, 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 go. Oh crap, I'm burned out. I can't do anything. Okay, I'm back. Let's go, 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 go. It's a very I think common personality type. But, you know, like when you first start in tech and you first start like kind of reading through like what tech is like, a lot of the headlines are like people are drinking coffee with butter in it and taking like ice baths and uh-huh doing like blood transfusions and God only knows what else, like vitamin drips. And now I'm like, give me all of these things. Like I will take all of these things. And like, how did that even happen to me? Am I really this person now? But it's just like anything for like an inch more performance, right? I think one of the things that makes us human is that we are adaptable. You know, you can take a bunch of people, put them in the Arctic and, you know, assuming they don't all die, you come back 100 years from now, like, they all have all sorts of different tools and ways of life and culture because they've just adapted to that environment. And you take a bunch of people, you put them in Silicon Valley, <laughs> and you look what's going on, and, yeah, there's crazy blood transfusions and ice baths and all this stuff because you adapt to the culture and the lifestyle of, like, working super hard to make your dream a reality. And that's not a culture that exists everywhere. And I guess in recent months or years, I guess, there's sort of a diaspora. People are sort of moving away. You were mentioning potentially moving to Miami. You know, I live in Seattle now. So I don't know if the culture is necessarily going to change, but it is a very real thing that who you are is flexible and that it depends a lot around like what your goals are and, and where you are and what everybody around you is doing. I, I want to ask you the same question back. Like, how do you stay balanced? You build literally one of the best communities on earth and you have very similar things you're tackling, right? 
you have to always kind of be on and, and to be supportive and to, to kind of live the same values as your community. So how did you first deal with it when you started? I wasn't balanced at all. Really? I mean, it's, pro- it's probably fair to say that like, I had a relationship end <laughs> because I started Indie Hackers because I was working 80 hours a week and I was in go, 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 go mode. You know, and that was 2016. So uh, I don't have any tips for, <laughs> for how to do it well because I didn't do it well. But at the same time, I think one of the cool things about a community, a true community, is that the value comes from the people who are part of the community. And as a community creator, you're just sort of like shaping the space that other people can help each other in. And the cool thing about it is when it's working, you can kind of step aside and the community's doing its own thing. And it took a long time for indie hackers to get to that point. But like I can go, you know, camping for a week or two and come back. It's still together. People are still equally as happy or unhappy as they were before I left because they're like helping each other and they don't really depend on me to do very much besides the podcast. And so nowadays it's much easier. But in the early days, I was also subject <laughs> to burnout. And uh, I think that's it's pretty common. You miss it. I feel like... Working at that pace is just so addictive. Uh, I think a lot of times people, when they hear burnout, they have like a negative connotation to it. They're like, oh, you must be working so hard that it's horrible. Mm-hmm. And instead, for me, it's just like, it's just so interesting. I can't stop. It's like reading the most interesting book in the world, right? It's just the actual emotion around that sometimes is extremely positive. And for me, it's like when I left, when I left banking, banking for me was like a, you know, 100 hour a week job, zero slave, always on a plane. It, it was almost like... I need 20 more hours. I get super addicted to it. Sometimes. I mean, I think there's a, I mean, there's a lot of research on this too. Like what makes you happy in, in a job is like this combination of purpose, autonomy, and mastery. And so as a startup founder, like you're developing mastery. You're constantly being, I guess, coming up against these very difficult to solve problems, many of which have never been solved or there's not a great guide to solve it. Or even if other people have solved it at their company, it's going to look different for years. And so you have to figure out how to like solve that problem. Then there's autonomy. Maybe you have investors, maybe you have a board or something, but no one's really telling you what to do. Like you wake up and do whatever you want. You know, you didn't have to do this podcast episode. So you have like ultimate autonomy, which is so important, I think, for happiness to not have somebody telling you what to do and to feel like your fate is in your own hands. And then you have purpose. And I think for me, purpose is where like it's a combination of having like this mission, this thing that you're doing that's bigger than yourself. And so with candor, you're like helping make the world a better place. You're literally helping people make more money at their jobs, be more fulfilled and acquire these skills they didn't have. And when you're successful, it's like, that's bigger than you. You're not just like enriching yourself, but you're helping other people. And that's awesome. So with Indie Hackers, I had kind of the same thing. But I think the other half of purpose, and this is where the hard work comes in, is doing things that make it kind of obvious that it's not for yourself. And when you're working really, really hard and you're sweating and you wake up and you feel a little bit miserable, it can't be more obvious. Like, you know, this is for something bigger than me because it's hard. You know, like my friend just had a baby a year ago and like she's stressed a lot of the time. It's hard, you know, and it's like it's like that sort of amplifies a sense of purpose because she's like, you know, this is for this other person's life that I'm working so hard, et cetera. And so uh, I kind of miss it. But I agree with you that like just because you're working really hard doesn't necessarily mean that you're miserable. If you have those three things, you can be working very hard and be super fulfilled and super happy. Yeah, it's just it's very it's very addictive, especially like if if you're if you find it really interesting, right? And I'm only two years in, like actually less even in two years, so maybe I'm in the honeymoon phase still. Um, <laughs> but I I'm still in the phase where it's really really interesting, and it's actually right. hard. It's very hard for me to sleep. Like it's one of the things I struggle with the most. Like I probably do four hours a night, five hours max, yeah. and that's like on a good night. 
So I'll wake up and I'll have an idea and then I'll write it down and I'm like, oh no, let me just flush it out just a little more. And yeah. then like, shit, it's 8 a.m. I have a meeting in like 15 minutes. Like that was it. No more sleeping tonight. It's not great. You need sleep. And I'm not one to lecture. I just got this uh, thing on my wrist here. It's like a whoop. And it's a band that tracks your heart rate. It's pretty good. Their app is awesome. They give you all sorts of stats about your sleep and your recovery and all sorts of stuff just based on your heart rate. Mm. run a lot of algorithms on it and my sleep is atrocious i'm also averaging like four and a half five hours of sleep over the past like two months since i got it and it's not even because i'm waking up thinking about any sort of like crazy problem or anything it's just like <laughs> i just don't sleep that well but i i do think that it's important to sleep because i have like like for example this podcast i slept pretty well last night so i feel like on top of my game i feel like i can have a great conversation with you other podcasts like you might listen to me i feel a little bit tired or whatever or i sound tired and it's like directly correlated to me not sleeping that well and so I think it's a tricky balance as a founder to like take care of yourself when your brain is racing and everything is so addictive and so fun, quite frankly, it's a lot more fun than lying in bed, <laughs> staring at the ceiling, trying to go back to sleep. Yeah, no, 100%. I've really become like acutely aware of things like insulin resistance. And I think that's, that's incredibly interesting. Like, the relationship between how much sleep you have and your insulin resistance or how you process stress. And I spent a ton of time, I think, adjusting my, my diet to be like much more optimized for like performance and also much more optimized for just getting the energy like really nourishing my body and taking care of myself for me like it's actually been very positive in a way to to think about these things because when i was not a founder i didn't think as much about taking care of myself and when i became a founder i actually like really got focused on taking care of my body and doing therapy and you know exercising enough and sleeping more even though four hours doesn't seem like a lot it's actually a lot when you come from banking so it's still a lot for me. That's um, terrible. <laughs> yeah. uh, but I actually become become healthier uh, as a yeah. founder, at least in my mindset. Yeah. I mean, I think it pushes you when you're doing hard things. You kind of have to pay attention. You know, I have my car. I'm terrible with my car. I don't take it to the shop. I just drive it around with like the air pressure low on a tire because I don't care. Right. If I was a race car driver and I had to perform super hard, like I would have a whole team taking care of my car. But I want to talk about like this process of you becoming a founder because sure. we got from the from the story from you like moving from Bulgaria to the U.S. Yeah. and living in like sort of this landing pad. But like, how did you like how did you come up with the idea for Candor? How did you get into I guess the startup scene? So I worked in finance for most of my career, so I wanted to really understand how money worked. And my first finance job was in 2008 during the foreclosure crisis. I don't know if you remember; it's not too long ago, but it feels like a century to me. And it was the most horrible job in the world, but it taught me so, so much. So essentially, I was working for Freddie Mac, who is the company that owns all the mortgages that are serviced by like Bank of America and Wells Fargo. And my job was to find out, uh, first of all, why people were not paying their loans and which mortgage pools of loans basically were just like not salvageable anymore. Like the loans were bad. And that involved doing something really human and involved like actually talking to people and literally going through people's budget, like everything in trying to figure out if people are uh, truthful about what they're saying and how they're spending their money. And that was like a really big education for me on, on just how people in the U.S. dealt with money because a lot of things were new for me. In my country, there was like not really an established strong banking system. There was no credit. Like even having a debit card, you were like really cool if you had that. Like all of these things were like really new, right? And I became an expert on uh, loss mitigation and essentially dealing with very complex mortgage issues which is how I ended up eventually consulting in compliance and working a ton of compliance and then ultimately in private banking. 
and I worked at a bank that basically services all of the richest people in, in the U.S. Uh, so they deal with very kind of super interesting types of mortgages and complex products. And I started at the bottom and like literally got promoted like six or seven times or something in like five years and ended up working for the president. She's now the CEO. Having talked to a bunch of people who couldn't pay their mortgages and yeah. learning, okay, here's why people can't pay their mortgages. And then moving to this other sort of division or place where you're talking to like, you're examining like the richest people who have like the most complex deals. Like what were some of the differences between like very wealthy, I guess, financially savvy people and like the average American who was like struggling to pay their mortgage or just was defaulting on their loans? The biggest difference is access to knowledge, honestly. Like a lot of times the same financial instrument is very beneficial for somebody who's wealthy or, you know, not even known as a helpful thing for somebody who is not wealthy and has not historically had access. So I'll give you an example of something that's not mortgages. Trusts are a really good example. If you're someone who's wealthy, you 100% have spoken to a trust officer. You've talked about your estate or how much money you're leaving. And maybe some of the assets you have are even moved around trust. Your mortgage might be in a trust. You know, all your stuff might be in some kind of shelter to kind of optimize your taxes, to, you know, figure things out. People think that trusts are just for rich people. And so we have historically not really recommended or even thought about trust as something that's for me or for someone like me, right, for a regular person. In fact, it's one of those powerful things for, for instance, people in tech, uh, when you have a highly appreciating security and you're being paid in like a stock or like an RSU, getting into trust and understanding trust fairly early in your career is enormously powerful. And so the difference is really between outcomes is one person really knew how to utilize the things they had available to them. The other person didn't even know things were available to them. And so it's not necessarily about the amount of money you have. It's about the access to how to manage that money. You can have very little money, but you can have a lot of knowledge on how to manage it. And you will be absolutely in a better position than someone who never even knew things were available to them. People are not educated about how to use credit. And we like to think about it as like, oh, well, this person just doesn't know. No, it's society's responsibility if we're going to accept something that's for wide use, like credit, that we educate people before they get it. And that doesn't mean like, you know, education sometimes has a kind of condescending, like you need to be educated. It's more so just like understand very practically how it works. We don't advertise financial products practically. We advertise them as points to go on vacation, right? And people really want and they're hungry for that information. But, you know, it's very hard to find a source of truth. So that's the biggest difference. You'd see people would make bad financial choices. They'd go deeper into credit or they would not structure their budget well or they didn't know that they could actually avoid a ton of liability by putting something in a trust or by structuring things differently. And a lot of times it's just those circumstances that led to foreclosure. Sure, you know, losing a job is one of those things that you can't structure away, but it could have been a significantly lesser blow had people, you know, had access to, for instance, understand how they could purchase insurance or had access to understand how they could compound their savings in, in an investment account and not just hold it in cash. So it could have been much more over time. It's super interesting. I mean, it leads directly into like candor because candor is basically bridging this gap, right? People don't necessarily have the information. They're not educated to make these great decisions. And so you start this company in candor and okay, now you're educating people to help them make better financial decisions. Was that like the motivation? Like what, what made you decide this is what I should do as a business? I should do a startup and here's what it should be. I felt like everyone uh, I was interviewing at the time, so I was hiring uh, data scientists and I was fortunate to interview people from, you know, really good companies like Apple, Goldman, uh, you know, Facebook, you name it. And those people were very experienced and they were still like not negotiating at all. 
And we would put out a price and they would say, great, I'll come work here. Or you know, they really wouldn't self-advocate. And it really struck me as odd. And I remember at some point I started telling people, like, you can ask me for more. <laughs> you should here negotiate here. with me. <laughs> yes. You should negotiate with me. And then I started researching and understood that, like, this is actually not as common practice as I thought it would be. Because in finance, everyone negotiates everything. But in right. tech, it's actually much less accepted. Finance, you live and die by the arbitrage, right? So right. don't hate the player, hate the game. It's part of your skill set uh, when you're it in is. finance. Like, that's your yeah. skill set. When you're in tech, like, your skill set is like, I am good at marketing or I am good at coding this thing. And this other part of my job where I negotiate my salary is not really my expertise. So it's it's not part of the culture, I guess. Yeah. And then kind of I, I I went to a lot of banker meetings also. And I realized there's like it's a two-folded issue. Like first, people don't know that they are the most some of the most valuable members of society, right? They're literally building the future. They're building everything I use every day. And their skill set is much more valuable than face value. And people are not really taught or made to believe that that's true and i felt like that was a massive disservice not just to them as individuals but like societally like why are we watching the kardashians like i want to know which engineer built like a product that i use right that's what i care about and so i really felt that that is a pain point and i also just understood that people would come and try to get a financial product and their access to that was much lower because they were getting paid in stock so on the other side, banking hadn't evolved enough to understand how to underwrite somebody who got paid solely in stock, how to give them a mortgage and how to give them equal access. So it was a two-sided issue. On one side, you know, we have a lot of people who are either first gen or come from a very different mentality in their field who don't know they could ask for more, also don't know they have access to a ton of financial instruments. On the other side, you have like a whole system that hasn't evolved since the 80s to bridge that gap. And I felt that, that was messed up in so many ways. So we started with the negotiation because we wanted to understand how people handle their money. And so for a year, we sort of had conversations with people around not just how to negotiate your salary, but what are you actually going to do with that money? And why do you want more money? And how does that fit into everything that you're doing in understanding very deeply, like how people view money in tech mm -hmm. and why they have certain conceptions of it before we decided what, what first product to roll out. So when I think about a startup, the first thing I think about is what problem are you solving for people? Because you can learn a lot about a company based solely on the problem that you're solving. You learn what kind of customers they might have, how much money they might be able to charge based on how you know, valuable that problem is, how frequently the customers might use their product based on how frequently that problem occurs, et cetera. But then you have all these other parts of a startup, which is like, okay, how do you get distribution and actually reach your customers? And what is the actual product or service you're providing, et cetera? And what's your business model? So what did that look like for Candor? And this is the first year where you're helping with salary negotiation and what to do, what people should do with their salaries. But like, Okay, well, how are you doing that? You know, and how are you reaching and finding these people? What did that look like? David and I had already, you know, had a fairly strong reputation for negotiating. So, like, on, on weekends, we would literally hold, like, a salon in our living room, and people could come and, like, whatever negotiation or career issue would sort of handle it together. And it started, yeah. like, with our friends, and then it kind of got forwarded along. Uh, so we literally put a page up with, here's our salary negotiation guide. We didn't even think about starting a company yet. And the salary negotiation guide went super viral really fast. Uh, and we did not intend to. It was literally a thing we sent people to say, we can't, like, we both have full-time jobs. <laughs> we can't, like, sit and negotiate for you, but, like, here's everything you should know. If your thing is not covered in there, then, like, please email me a specific question. And so we understood immediately with like discovered a pain point. And I think very quickly after starting the business, COVID hit. And we realized that people were negotiating jobs, but getting their roles rescinded, which means the company pulled the position from under you. Budgets were changing. Companies were laying people off. It's when COVID first hit. Right. 
And so all these people that were negotiating their salaries, they, a majority of them had no job. Like the company would pull the job in the last minute and everyone was scrambling. A lot of companies were laying off. So David, my co-founder, decided to make that information public. So we knew which companies were doing this, which we consider to be like a really grave offense. Not even telling a person they don't have a job, they just show up and they're like, oh yeah, right. joking about that. So we published the list and the list went viral. Within the first day, we had over a million views on the website. And then like the second for day, like it actually broke our site. Uh, Google, like it broke everything. We, we got a notification by, from uh, like Google that our Gmail was shut off because we're getting too many emails. So we had to like email them to like from separate account to convince them we're not spam because we're getting mad volume. And we even got like the U.S. government reach out to us to ask wow. for the data, like the the like uh, Air Force and the Pentagon, I think, for supply chain issues because we we're like the list of who was laying people off. So how many how many companies were on this list? Was it just tech companies? It started with just tech companies and then we let people add any company. So it started with like 200 and I think it ended up close to 10,000. And people would real time put in comments and we had uh, volunteers from the community that would read and sort the comments and make sure, you know, they're not like hearsay or inaccurate. We had companies reach out to us and make statements. We'd post company statement. I've spoken to the like chief marketing officer of almost every public tech company in like the first three months of starting candor. And that was yeah. very intimidating because some people That's would reach nuts. out to us and say, like, you're about to jack up our stock price if you tell people we're laying people off. I'm like, are you laying people off? Well, yeah. I'm like, okay, then what do you want me to do? <laughs> yeah, that's, that's the truth. That's what's going on. You're jacking up your own stock price. <laughs> yeah. We had this uh, founder reach out, and I don't know how even yeah, he got my number. He was like, hey, we're about to close a deal. If we close a deal, we don't have to lay these people off. So, like, can you right. hold on just, like, posting it for a day? And it was just kind of crazy. So I went from like somebody that like people in tech didn't know to like everybody in tech knew who I was. And it was very right. intimidating for me because I'm super private. So it was good for the company, but it was just like a very tough personal period for me at the time. Yeah. How did you handle like suddenly being so public and recognizable? I did not enjoy it. I grew up idolizing people who kind of created something larger than themselves and, and left a mark. Those are the people in, that I really respected growing up. And I really wanted to be like that someday. And I think a lot of my perceptions of what companies are like and cultures are like really got shattered in that like one month period where we hosted the list because you have some of the companies who have the like most friendly brands externally literally going AWOL on me. And it was very clear, like they didn't care if like hundreds of people had no jobs overnight or that they'd screwed somebody who like just had a baby and they just like pulled their job offer. Then they absolutely gave like zero Fs. And that really broke my perception of like how real is culture on the outside versus the inside. And that's uh, that's kind of how the newsletter got born. I started really realizing that what companies were saying externally and what people were experiencing internally were really like out of very, very odds of the spectrum sometimes. And I felt like the responsible thing to do was to just give people transparency. So yeah, let's talk about your newsletter because your newsletter, sure. as I mentioned earlier, is one of my favorite newsletters in tech. Oh my god! I would describe it as like this perfect combination of like gossip and money and useful information. And so every time I read it, I'm just like rubbing my hands together, like this is super juicy. How did Nia get the dirt? And you're in this—I don't know—you're just in this cool position where you just get to, I guess, get access to all this information that people would love to have, but that of course companies probably don't want shared. Sure. Yeah, I get a lot. I get a lot of uh, what I call love mail from companies. 
And, you know, my answer is always the same. If I'm wrong, please, please let me know how I'm wrong exactly. I'm happy to post anything you want. And surprisingly, no one, uh, no one's asked me to post anything yet. So. So you can sign up at candor.co slash newsletter. And when you go there, the description is like the newsletter for top tech professionals, the weekly scoop on who's hiring, which teams are the hottest and who's on the move. Directly, directly from tech's top salary negotiator. And there's a picture of you <laughs> right next to it. Part of why you're so recognizable. But yeah, when I read your newsletter, I mean like part of it is super personal. Like you talk about your life in the intro, you talk about what's going on with you. But a lot of it is like really gossipy. Like you were saying, like, you know, RSU sales are up. Zuckerberg sales weekly shares for $4.5 billion so far in 2021. You know, others who are on stage selling plans include Jeff Bezos, Sergey Brin, Larry Page. You know, you're talking about what these very recognizable companies and names are doing. Yeah. And for some reason, as like a reader, like that just clicks with me. I'm like, oh, I want to know what they're doing because maybe that informs what I should be doing. And then I'm like, how does Nia even know what they're doing? <laughs> well, I mean, I should probably say, like I, I built and led a team in banking that was essentially one of the top competitive intelligence teams in the industry. So I have a lot of experience in getting the good gossip. <laughs> so, yeah. <laughs> and I really enjoy it. I think there's an angle to companies we don't often get to see. And a lot of times we think of companies as one dimensional. We think of companies as the product they're building. There's a lot more than that. And I really hope that in my writing, people understand how the product and the people together end up informing the, the market price and how, th how things move and why they move a certain way, hopefully is, is less of a mystery in my writing than I think it is just kind of day to day trying to figure out if it's a good idea to join a company or not. Earlier this year, you're telling me about your newsletter. You said it was like a super viral. I don't know how fast it was growing, but I, I, I took notes. I take notes whenever I talk to somebody. I'm like reading through my notes and it's like, it's a viral newsletter. You had a 65% open rate and that's where you spill all the gossip. What do you think it is about the newsletter that makes it so viral? Because a lot of people would love to have a newsletter that people actually read. But like, frankly, most newsletters that I read, even if they're useful, they're not that viral. Like, I don't want to share them with people. I don't want to talk to other people about it. Uh, they certainly don't have 70% open rates. What's special about your newsletter? Well, I think two things. I think it provides information you can't find anywhere else. I think there's a kind of unique component to it. It, it also talks about companies in a way that uh, I just don't see broken down anywhere else. I think a lot of times you'll find really amazing reporting in places like The Verge or Protocol, which, uh, you know, I worship those publications and some of those reporters are both friends and people I look up to, but it's lacking the financial aspect that, you know, a Bloomberg would have. Or you'll find uh, something on a tech forum hidden somewhere, uh, you know, some people on Reddit are, are blind or just uh, shooting the shit, but like they don't have the full context of how that affects right. the stock. And for me, those things like don't leave separately, they live together and it's really important to understand all of those things at the same time. I also obviously have access to understanding how companies work by virtue of, we research companies a ton for, for our clients. And so I think what makes it viral is first how honest it is and the second how unique the information is that you get at once. It almost feels like that's the one thing you have to read that informs you, it gives you a full perspective. You don't have to keep digging on everything. And I think the third thing is, I think the intention of the newsletter is really clear. The intention is to kind of create more equity of information. And I think people really resonate with that message because, you know, we live true to that message. We don't, I don't not publish something because it's going to make somebody look bad. Uh, it's very, very clear that if there's information that's bad, I'm still going to publish it because everyone in the community needs to know. And I think people realize that's genuine and, you know, I don't always get the best 
uh, response from companies for writing this newsletter. And there are situations where we've had, you know, company CEOs reach out and, you know, very senior people get forwarded on it. There was a case where we announced a bunch of VP resignations before the CEO of a public company even knew they were happening. And so they reached out and were, were like, how the hell do you know? And why the hell are you publishing it? And I was like, well, yeah. hi. So, <laughs> very intimidating, but hi. And like, is it true? It's true. So I'm not going to take it down. So yeah. it's super good. Yeah. And it's, you know, when I think about it, I think a lot of it is like this word gossip, which is not necessarily a bad thing. Like gossip has this bad connotation. But I read a lot of evolutionary psychology books, and they all talk about gossip because, like, we're extremely gossipy creatures. Something like 80% of all human communication is talking about other people who aren't in the room. And also something like 85% of gossip is, like, either neutral or positive. It's not always negative. It's mostly just, like, useful. And I think it's just very useful as a person to know what other people in your quote-unquote tribe are doing. You know, like, if you can imagine, like, a bunch of different human tribes all out in the wilderness, the tribes where the people gossiped the most – we're probably the most efficient, like, well-put-together tribes where everybody knew, like, oh, Joseph is really good with a spear or, you know, so-and-so is really good at cooking and everyone kind of knew who to trust and who not to trust and so they could function better as a team. And so sure. I think kind of the structure of, like, what you're doing with your newsletter where you're, like, kind of telling everyone in tech, like, here's what these execs are doing, here's what these companies are doing. Like, it's just providing useful information so everybody can make better decisions uh, and actually, I guess, more efficient decisions. In a way, like you're making this whole industry more efficient by providing information that people might not want to be out there. Yeah, but I mean, information has a life of its own, right? Like nobody owns information. And I think a, a lot of times, like big companies are under the fallacy of like they can control the narrative. And sometimes, you know, they've been successful in doing that in the past. But in reality, whether I'm writing this newsletter or not, people are still going to talk about it. So this is kind of the place where those things that no one, you know, everyone's talking about and everyone knows, I just kind of air it out. So I'm also just not talking about things that are just, you know, I wouldn't even say they're, they're considered controversial takes, because if you spend enough time with tech people, you know, that's exactly what's going on in the company they work on. It's just more so like for the first time, it's leaking outside of the company. Like we're used to only experiencing that when we're inside. I think that's a great disservice because before you go to work somewhere, I think you're entitled to know what it's actually like and whether that's the place you're going to do your best work or what kind of people like it would be really, really successful in helping make the place bigger and better. You know, for instance, if I was going to like go apply for Twitter today and I was a consumer PM, I would be like overjoyed because that's one of the biggest challenges they need to solve. Right. So they need to figure out how to make money from that ad. And I would want to know that. I would not want to join there if I was like nine fiddle or something and my job would be the least priority for the whole company. Right. I want to join the hot seat. Like I want to know where I'm going to be visible and what are you know shareholders looking for uh, yeah. and therefore what are executives looking for from me. I think it makes everything better for information to be transparent because like if you live in a world where it's likely that anything that you do as a company is going to become public information like that's a pretty strong incentive to do, to do things well because <laughs> you might be on the front page of hacker news or whatever <laughs> you know or like you know the subject line of the candor newsletter because you didn't do things well and so it incentivizes yeah. people i think to be better and i like the the symmetry too because like as an employee like come your employees want to know about you like you have to give them a resume they might look into your background like if you tweet the wrong thing you might be fired so like you probably want to know what's going on with them as well and it's kind of crazy like i Never intended for this many people to read it. Uh, so it's kind of one of the other examples of like, 
I'm not super comfortable with being like the most public person, but it just kind of happened. You know, I won't betray this person's confidence, but somebody I know who writes for the information told me we officially have more subscribers than the information. <laughs> and so now I'm like, oh my God, I'm really scared. <laughs> like, I, you know, from the aspect of like, I want to make sure the information continues to be useful and I want right. to understand more of who the readers are. So we also like get to know people. We do board right. game night. We're doing like a Magic the Gathering tournament in January. Cool. Uh, we have like Zoom calls where people get to know each other. So it's not just like I'm sending this to a list of random people. Like these people come together and they like socialize with each other, get value right. out of it too. And I think that's right. a big part of what it's viral too is like people feel like it's for others exactly like them. And when they meet these people in person, it's actually super powerful when you see who the other readers are. So I think they super enjoy meeting each other. That's been the best part for me is like connecting people in real life. Yeah. Yeah. You're building yeah. a community around all your content. And it's not yes. just your newsletter. It's not just your podcast appearances. You've got like, you know, another section on your website that's just guides. And you have a guide to salary negotiation, a guide to uh, performance reviews, a guide to how to quit or how to survive a layoff or how to work from home or how to get more from your RSUs. How does all of this feed into like your mission today? Because as you said, like the first year of Kendra was like pretty much just all about salary negotiation. Nowadays, it's more about RSU management. Like how does all of this play together? I think careers have changed substantially in the last 20 years, right? Our parents were doctors and lawyers, uh, for those of us, you know, that had parents that were doctors and lawyers, which, you know, I'm not part of, but that was where the, those were the big professions, right? So if you, if you were a doctor or a lawyer, you got paid cash and was a lot of cash. You then got an investment advisor who helped you put this cash somewhere. And that was it. That's the kind of beginning and end of complexity of life for you. Can I make it into a good school to get into those professions? But things have really changed in the last 20 years. And now picking a job is in itself an investment. And we have not evolved sufficiently to be able to help people do that in a way that is, you know, really honoring the commitment a person is taking when they take a job. Whether you're going to work for Snapchat or Facebook or Google or a startup has massive financial implications for you if over 50% of your income is going to come from equity. And if you're senior, it could be 70, it could be 80%. Uh, I have clients that make, you know, 300K on paper and get like four or $5 million in RSUs. So if that is how you, it, nobody's supporting you in making that decision right now, right? And so for me, these two things are actually very connected because the new like banking 2.0 is the wealth management starts with help pick a career. It doesn't start with the moment that you cash out. It doesn't start with the moment where you're liquid enough for everyone to want your business. Picking a career, understanding that career, knowing what to do with it, when to move to another company, when to vest, when to when to use your vested stop for something else, when to reinvest it. Like, what are you doing? Those are all interrelated. And anyone in banking today who is not thinking about managing careers and money together is absolutely crazy and will be phased out in the next 10 years. So that's kind of the mission behind Candra. And that's why there's so many guys. People are like, why are you telling me how to quit my job if you're trying to manage my equity? <laughs> Right. Well, because you could probably make a lot more equity across the street. Go ahead and look at the salaries currently. You probably should move. And here's how to do it. And here's how to make more money. And banking is so far behind on the eight ball uh, on that. Like if you go to your wealth advisor or your banker and you're like, hey, I'm about to work for, for Netflix. What should I know? That would be like, well, if you want to open a checking account or a savings account? Like, mm. <laughs> <you know? laughs> like they're not going to tell you. No, they're not going to. And even if you come with all the facts, 
they're not going to help you. So usually what people, you know, did before candor is people who could afford to would hire an attorney. And there's five or six people in the Valley that are really known for tech compensation. They mostly do executives, very expensive, between seven, $800 an hour. Sometimes you have to hire an accountant because if you're more senior, you actually get the financials of the company before you take a job. Uh, so you have to see if your equity will be worth something. Sometimes people hire like a CEO coach or just a coach, even if they're not a CEO, so they can actually go for a more intensive negotiation. And none of these people talk to each other and it's bizarrely expensive. Right. And I think that's messed up. I think that should be rolled into your banking and whoever is going to help you make financial decisions needs to understand where your money came from to begin with. Does that mean a candor's greatest ambition is to be a bank? I would say, it, you know, eventually we could be the next Goldman Sachs, but I feel like Morgan Stanley is probably a bit of a better example. Morgan Stanley. Uh, okay. You're yeah. the next Morgan Stanley. How there do you, you get from where you are today? And we haven't even talked about your business model, like how Candor makes money today. But sure, sure. What is that? And like, what are the steps you need to follow to become the next Morgan Stanley? Well, I'm not going to give you the roadmap in case you're looking for <laughs> uh, for for a thing to do, but I'll, I'll well, tell you what we're doing my, now. My competitor. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> Tell me exactly your plans. Yeah. <laughs> Essentially, what we do now is we help people who get paid in RSUs at public companies get access to those RSUs. So we help people get liquidity, even during blackout or you know, even outside of trading periods. We can help people access right. their stock, which significantly helps reduce volatility, get to a better position with diversification, reduce concentration risk, and reduce market risk. Which you all fold as a tech employee, even if your company has not told you about that. Which is Another big thing I'd love there to be changed in the world is for companies to explain your compensation as an investment and not just as a, like, here's some free money. Um, so we help people uh, realize how uh, to manage their RSUs, how to get liquidity out of them, diversify them really well, and we sort of automate all of that process for you, which would be ridiculous if you were doing it manually. That's okay. what we do today. Just to sort of explain some terminology to listeners, like a blackout period might be uh, if you work at Salesforce and they're going to have, I don't know, an earnings call coming up, they're like, you're legally not allowed as an employee, I think, to sell for a certain period. And that happens like every quarter, right? It's a little bit more intense than that. So for most companies, you can only sell usually once uh, in a quarter. So during, even if there's no, nothing special going on, most tech companies consider employees insiders. And that's a vestige of the stock scandals essentially in the 80s when we made everybody an insider, even if they're a regular employee. And so you can only sell typically only during uh, an earnings call right after. It just so happens that it's also the most volatile time for the stock because earnings calls usually introduce performance information. Company might not have done well or might have done really well. The price is going to fluctuate the most either way right after an earnings call. So instead of waiting like once every three months to sell, we help people sell gradually on a like weekly basis. You come in, we set you up on a stage selling plan and you could gradually sell your RSU. That's better because first you're going to get a better average price if you sell over a longer period of time versus just dump whenever you're allowed to. The second reason why it's better is because it's incredibly incredibly dangerous to hold this much market risk in your portfolio. So most investor advisors recommend not having more than 10% in any asset. Most tech employees have more than 50% of all of their wealth in RSUs. So you need to divest yourself of that as fast as possible and diversify it in things you think will perform similarly well or better or things that you believe in, but you cannot have all of your wealth in, in one stock and still, you know, feel like you're doing the best that you can. Because essentially, 
we're conditioned to believe that having all of our wealth in this one stock makes us a good employee, makes us loyal to the company, makes us, you know, this is what you're supposed to do. This is how people got rich. But on the other hand, you're seeing people like Mark Zuckerberg and basically every tech executive sell their stock because it's not the optimal position. So the biggest <laughs> believers are divesting because that's, you know, what you're supposed to be doing. Then uh, why are we not telling employees they even have the option to do that? Wow, which is pretty right. crazy. And it's so different being a founder and an employee, you know, like you could be loyal to the company and be a good employee. But like if you're working at like a 10,000 person company, like as an engineer, what are the chances that the individual decisions that you make day to day are going to move the stock price? Not that much. If you're the founder, no. you're Mark Zuckerberg, you're the, running the ship. Of course, it makes more sense to be more aligned, to have a higher percentage of, net, of your net worth and your own business, et cetera, because you're making these huge decisions and like, you know, that actually affect things. And so. I think a lot of people listening to this show, like, are, they're indie hackers, they're founders, they're starting companies, you know, assuming their companies do well, a huge percentage of their net worth is going to be in the equity for their company. But if you're an employee, which also a lot of people listen to this show are employees, like working on businesses on the side, you probably don't want, like, as you said, 50% or more of your net worth and your employer's stock. Yeah. I mean, tech stocks have a particular property. Most of them are considered to be uh, growth stocks, right? And growth stocks are subject to higher volatility. And volatility just means that the stock fluctuates more. So sometimes it's high, sometimes it's low, but it's just more frequently higher or low than, you know, the average market. And anytime it's low, you lose the ability to compound your earnings. And that's essentially how you make money with investment, this through compounding. So if your stock has been low three or four times, that's uh, enough in some cases to erase any of the growth that you might have seen. Even if the company does super well, you could have actually done better in many cases or just the same with much less risk in a better diversified portfolio. And this compounding aspect and volatility aspect is what most of the time tech companies don't really inform you of when they first pay you stock. They tell you like the stock is going to go up. Yes, but the road it took to go up is very, very important to ultimately how much money you're going to make or lose in your company. And that's the biggest reason why senior people end up selling part of their stock is A, so they are not as concentrated, and B, because they're diversifying into investments that have lower volatility. And this is especially important in inflation. So historically, we've seen, you know, many periods of inflation before, and growth stocks, especially in IT, underperform in inflation by a ton. And while tech has been going up and up and up for the last, you know, five years, we're all accustomed to seeing the upwards movement. There's no guarantee that's going to hold an in inflation, especially considering the historical data and performance. And if you're trapped and not being able to sell your stock until an earnings call, you could just be sitting by the sidelines watching it, you know, basically go down very fast without being able to do anything. So for some people, they still have the high risk tolerance and so they want to keep all of it. And I respect that and I understand it. But I think people are entitled to a choice. I think people are entitled to have the information of pros and cons. What if I keep it? What if I sell it? What if I keep all of it? What if I sell all of it? What if it's just some part of it? What happens? And those conversations are what we're missing in the discourse in, in tech and banking right now. We're telling people that like either keep it all or sell it all. And these are both not perfect solutions because we're, you're not telling people the underlying reason of how the stock is affected in either direction. People are smart enough to decide for themselves. You just need to give them the information. What is the most, like, just talking to you about your story, it all seems like such smooth sailing. You know, it's like, launch a newsletter, wildly popular. You know, put out this list, wildly popular. Like, we got this product. We're going all the way to Goldman Sachs level. What's the hard part of running Candor? What's got you stressed? What's got you working hard? Like, what are the, I guess, the biggest challenges like you have to overcome 
maybe maybe a different angle. Let me let me kind of tell you what keeps me keeps me awake at night. So I think there's there's two things that I really think about a lot. One thing that I think about a lot is whether or not there's sufficient awareness of how finance works broadly in tech for people to to understand the product really quickly. So we have a product that is very complicated, right? So people need to understand how investments work, how stocks work, how inflation works, all of these things before they purchase the product. And we do a really great job of it now, but the problem is we need to societally do a really great job at it. Like it's not just a candor problem, it's an industry problem. And sometimes this problem is exacerbated by competing incentives. Most companies really want their employees to be educated and want employees to have that information, but lack the tools to do it because banks and investment firms, they don't really come in and give you education on how any of this works. However, the discourse in tech on the individual level is very much like my friend said X. I heard some other person did Y. And we're still in the kind of word of mouth uh, mentality because companies are not coming out and educating people broadly on how stock works. And as an industry, we don't really have yet concentrated knowledge base on how this works. Everything feels very new and people are right. still relying on word of mouth. So the thing that, you know, I, I spent a lot of time thinking about is what needs to exist for people in tech to see their stock as an investment and not just as you know, this is uh, free money and if it appreciates, great. If it doesn't appreciate, not that's fine too. We're past that point. Too much of our pay is an equity to not look at this as an investment. The second thing that keeps me awake at night is inflation. I think very few people realize how fast inflation can hit. Uh, I remember inflation from my youth. It was over 300% when I was growing up. Growing at a, you know, 7% or 6.8% clip or something was the last reporting of the CPI. And inflation can make a lot of things happen very, very fast, especially in growth stock. So it worries me, like, will we be able to get to enough people in visibility before, you know, people actually start seeing losses? You know, I see it as a social responsibility to help people understand how inflation works and how it could affect them. And it feels still very nebulous to a lot of people. So we've been doing a lot of calls around inflation and trying to get the, the community to see what resources exist or what research is out there. So those are the two things I think about. And this is not a problem one company is going to solve. As much as I love my company and I think my company is the future, I know that this only works if multiple companies are doing it, right? And so I would like to have more competition running candor because that means that there's more awareness broadly. It's not a cool thing. It's an important thing. And there's a really big distinction, right? I agree with you. It's something to be passionate about. And I love talking to founders like you who actually are aware of the impact that you're having. And like when you can confidently say you want there to be more competitors because you're thinking about the bigger picture, like that's just sort of proof positive. And I agree with you about the challenge. Like if I had to guess the most difficult challenge for Candor, I would say it's the education piece because in Indie Hackers, we're also doing education. And like it is hard to help people learn. It's very hard. There's a lot of information for people to digest. It's not always immediately obvious. It takes a lot of patience and time for people to learn these types of things. And I think education is one of those things where like it's just more effective in small groups which makes it harder to reach scale with education. You know, like you can have 10 people in a room or 100 people on a webinar and reach them much more impactfully than, you know, 10,000 people reading a blog post, for example. But then you're not reaching as many people. And so I think education is super difficult, but it's cool to watch how you're doing it and all the different ways that you're making the sort of your educational resources like really entertaining and fun and gossipy and useful at the <laughs> same time. And I'm really, you. I really appreciate it. I think 
one last note on on education because it's something I, I think about a ton is like sometimes it's, it's easier to help people learn than to help people unlearn and then learn and i think that the challenge is we've taught people that investment is like an impulse decision that it's really easy you could buy something on robin hood at like one second you could trade it back and there's a really big difference between speculation and investment and a really big difference between building a legacy and something that like can not just power you but power the community around you if you build sufficient wealth and so i think the challenge with education and, and everyone who's working in consumer fintech is how do you teach people that responsibility actually pays more in the long run things that seem easy aren't always profitable and things that seem profitable aren't always easy so unlearning to learn is hard because by building so much infrastructure in fintech we've forgotten as an industry i think at the end of the day, it affects real people and it affects real people's balance sheet and affects, you know, how much they're going to be able to pay for like groceries and things that are like that. They're super, super simple. And so you have to teach people that it's not just like Robin Hood investing. It's really thinking about your kids, your family, your parents and figuring out what all of those other people in your life plus you really need. And what does wealth look like for you? And why do you care about wealth at all? And what are you going to do with it? In having these like more holistic and deeper conversations about money, and, and that is harder. But ultimately, it's important if we actually want to make a meaningful like community level change and not just like a money is fun change. So, yeah. What's your to sort of close things out? You know, you're a founder. Uh, people listening to this are aspiring founders or already founders. What's your advice to founders for how they should think about this kind of stuff or just running their their companies? The thing that I've appreciated most becoming a founder is that I had industry experience before I did it. Almost every day working has reinforced the fact that doing that first before I founded my company has been like very transformational for me. It has saved me a lot of headache and a lot of heartache that I'm sure other founders in, in my field, specifically in FinTech phase. So I think the, the thing I would recommend for anyone who wants to be a founder is figure out what would make you feel the most secure and prepared. For me, it was working in the field and really deeply understanding the field. For other people, it might be reading something or meeting a ton of people, but don't just go in it on a good idea and hope it's going to work out. If your company is even mildly successful, it takes over all of your life. Like you're going to live this, breathe this, wake up with it, go to bed with it. It is all consuming. Many times, you will not see friends because you have to ship something. You might have to work weekend because something broke. You probably will miss holidays with your family. It is an all-consuming quest to build something better for the world. And so you really, really want to make sure you're prepared for the journey because the journey is incredibly fun and exhilarating and is the most rewarding thing you will ever do emotionally, whether you succeed or fail. But it also will take everything you've got. And so before you start, take a vacation. Make sure you've done all of your research or you feel emotionally and mentally prepared. Uh, because once you're in it, you can't go out of it. You can't be a part-time founder. It is the one thing that will eat all of your life. Maybe for some people it's different. That's kind of my experience, but that's that's my advice is pack your bags before you go traveling. Pack your bags before you go traveling. Nia Dragova, thanks so much for coming on the show. Where can people go to find out more about what you're up to at Candor? Maybe subscribe to your newsletter as well. Uh, sure. So we're at candor.co. And you can also find me and connect with me on LinkedIn. I have a fairly unique name, so I'm the only result that pops up. Uh, please connect with me if uh, you have any questions. All right. Thanks again, Nia. Yeah.